I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I I think it has to be referred to surely uh, as a menage a trois because it's a a promise of future entertainment and enjoyment that um, nobody's quite sure is going to satisfy all three. The submarine element is the, the most proximate element. It shouldn't be the most important. The most important bit should be cooperation on things like quantum and AI, on drones and on you know future technologies. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode of our Security Summit series, Professor Rory Medcalf interviews Tom Tugendhat MP, Chair of the UK Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee. A decorated veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, Tom helped set up Afghanistan's National Security Council and made global headlines recently with a powerful speech deploring the withdrawal from Kabul. He is a prominent voice in Britain's stance on China and the future of the Indo-Pacific, and he's welcomed the new AUKUS arrangement. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome to the National Security Podcast. It's a great, great pleasure to welcome Tom Tugendhat to the podcast. Uh, Tom, if I can uh, address you by first name, uh, your your um, interest in national security ranges from Britain's interests in the world to, I guess, as, as I see it, the fate of um, liberal democratic order internationally. And, of course, now there's a very, very strong Indo-Pacific component, a, a very relevant um, Australia focus in the way I think Britain and you see the world. I'd like to uh, invite you to a, a pretty wide-ranging conversation around these issues, and I'd if, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin actually with Afghanistan because uh, you've been uh, a very prominent voice, uh, critical of not only the withdrawal from Afghanistan but the way, uh, you know, the, the really disastrous way in which that unfolded. And your your views, your words, the way you've articulated that um, I think resonated internationally, including in Australia, uh, but it would be really useful to get a sense from you on uh, on what next, uh, because the you know the, the withdrawal has, has happened. Uh, it, it's a tragedy at so many levels, and yet the uh, liberal international order, democracies like Australia and the UK, have to make some hard choices about about where we go from here. What are your thoughts? Well, look, I think the the fundamental thing to remember in Afghanistan is, from our perspective now. It's over on one level. Uh, We're not players there anymore. We're not the influence that we try to have over the Taliban will frankly be minor, if any. And so we need to look at what our interests are in the region and stop trying to, you know, influence Kabul and instead look at 
where we care about, which is, of course, countries like Pakistan, India, Iran, you know, those areas of the world where we're really facing different challenges and challenges by uh, because of the living bridge between our communities, challenges because of, um, you know, the instability that the government uh, may bring and challenges that affect the whole world because of uh, the energy and uh, resource constraints that those those administrations may 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 bring about. So I think we've, we've got to move away in a funny way from Afghanistan. I say that, you know, with a heavy heart, having spent so much of my own life there. But I, I think we've got to move away from Afghanistan and focus on uh, what's fundamentally in the interest of the British people, sorry, and Australian people, obviously. What, what about the connection of, of the uh, the circumstances of withdrawal, uh, the really awful spectacle of that uh, for credibility of democracies, for credibility of the United States as a leader, um, for credibility of Britain, Australia, European partners as um, as allies and, and, and actors in favour of a, a rules-based order. Uh, I mean, we, we can say it's over, but of course... It's not over for our credibility and our choices in the world going forward. And of course, there are there are countries like India that um, that now have a changed strategic landscape as a consequence. Um, so I, I would I would push you on that a little bit and ask um, how can we maybe not learn the lessons, but how can we uh, salvage something from this situation? Sorry, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, we will live with the reputation that we wrote ourselves, and that reputation will be affected by uh, what is uh, a defeat. Uh, there's no point in dressing it up. The, the West was, you know, the United States, NATO was defeated, was defeated in, in, in Afghanistan in 2021. Now you can put a whole series of explanations, if you like, you can put the timeline that President Obama set, you can put the instrument of surrender that um, President Trump signed. You can put uh, the the method of withdrawal, or you know, that President Biden ordered. All of these are true, but the reality remains that uh, the government in Taliban today, sorry, in Afghanistan today, is the Taliban, and that's not what we chose. Therefore, you know, however you dress it up, it's a defeat. And you, but you're right in that it's not over in the sense that the reputational damage will live on and. I don't know if you know, but a few days after um, the uh, the chaos in Kabul, the Chinese government was putting out messages in Taiwan highlighting the fact that these are the allies that the Taiwanese people are relying on. Um, now, it's pretty crude propaganda, and you know Taiwan is not the same as Afghanistan, and there's many other differences, but but you can see it's a propaganda message that they're trying to use, and countries like India and Pakistan, and indeed many countries in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa are also looking at this and seeing, hang on a minute, what does an alliance look like and what's reliable and what's not? So, I mean, I think, I think it is certainly a reputational issue that we, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to uh, manage, and that's why there's various uh, different levels of things that I think we need to be doing quickly. One of them, uh, I mean, we'll come to it, I'm sure, is the AUKUS deal, the Australia UK-US deal, which demonstrates a commitment to allies. But I actually think we all need to do more with others too because sticking together to the three of us isn't enough. We'll move to AUKUS fairly soon, but I, I really want to move from, uh, I guess, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan to the 
what is stated in the US uh, policy debate as the um, the major reason for that withdrawal. And it's not just that this was as you know, as has been called a, a, a forever war or, a, you know, sort of a very long um, conflict for the United States, but it's because of the strategic challenges globally and especially the rise of China's coercive power, the China challenge to the United States. That's the message that we're getting, that somehow the US felt the need to withdraw from Afghanistan to um, to demonstrate that it could step up in the Indo-Pacific. Now, this may or may not be uh, the whole story, but it's certainly the uh, the simple narrative we hear that a lot of this is about the Biden administration now doubling down on competing with China. Um, is is that how it's viewed uh, in Britain? Well, look, I can understand the uh, logic of the White House in saying, you know, our main effort is uh, the China challenge, and therefore we're, you know, as various electoral strategists put it, we're, we're, we're knocking the barnacles off the boat in order to focus on the main event. You know, I understand that logic. I would argue um, that um, Afghanistan, both in strategic terms and in resource terms, uh, you know, it, it, it's more than it's more than a barnacle on the boat. It it, it actually has an effect. On regional influence, it has an effect on um, the different ways in which China is trying to influence you know, the world, and it also demonstrates, as we just said, you know, an intent, a, a strategic commitment that um, is harder to demonstrate now. So, I mean, I, I, I get why they did it, and and I, I think that you know their focus on uh, China not as uh, you know, not in itself, but as an autocratic player that is challenging uh, democracies in a very fundamental way. I mean, I understand why they do that. And as, as you know, it's something that I've written and spoken about an awful lot because I do think we need to we need to wake up. Let's say that China is becoming the main game strategically. And I know that we could have a conversation, especially from your geographic vantage point about Russia uh, in that regard, and perhaps China and Russia as um, as, as, as different kinds of uh, autocracies um, and the challenges they pose. But let's, let's focus on China, if I may. Um, as you know, in the Australian national security debate, the Australian policy debate generally over the past five years, we've gone through a really extraordinary reality check on China uh, to the point now where, for example, um, just a, a fortnight ago, the um, Australian Treasurer, when given the opportunity to give a grand speech on basically anything, chose to focus uh, not on a traditional Treasurer's prosperity agenda, but on how to protect Australia from economic coercion from China. It was a national security speech. And that's just one um, emblem of, of, of where we're at in our debate. Of course, in defence and, and military uh, posture, there's, there's the uh, AUKUS deal that we're going to get to. Australia's had its China reality check, but it seems to me that Britain's gone through uh, a reality check on China in recent years as well, where you know the balance of looking at China either as a source of opportunity or as, if you like, a, uh, a place of risk has shifted. Can you uh, illuminate that debate? Sure. I mean, when I was first elected in 2015, um, we were in the so-called golden era um, that had been declared between Chairman Xi and Prime Minister Cameron. And the, and the, the idea was that, you know, 
Britain was China's best ally in Europe, you know, main marketplace for everything from renminbi bonds to, you know, capital. Anyway, it was a, it was a it was a very deliberate strategy by the UK government to get close to Beijing and to stay close. That changed and it, I mean it changed for me at various points when I was elected chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in 2017 and then over recent years culminating in uh, as you may know uh, I've been sanctioned by the Communist Party uh, of Beijing for, for for speaking out on human rights um, you know which is pretty extraordinary because Britain and other countries have sanctioned Chinese officials for violating the human rights of Chinese citizens and China has sanctioned people for defending the human rights of Chinese citizens is a pretty extraordinary situation to find yourself in. And that relationship has degraded, but it's not just sort of personally, it's degraded institutionally as well. You know, the reality is that the the Huawei debate that uh, I was alone in calling for changes to our relationship to Huawei in 2016, and I was um, considered, frankly, a bit far out uh, when I pointed out that making the spinal cord of your entire nervous system from uh, the parts built in a semi-hostile at that point and certainly autocratic state may not be the best long-term investment. It did feel to me a bit like we were building the house on sand. Um, You know, as I say, in 2016, that was a pretty unusual position to take. Um, By 2019, you know, we'd, we'd won a couple of... We'd won the debate, we'd won some votes. I mean, there are still people in, um, in, in the British government, including the Prime Minister, who describe themselves as uh, Sinophiles um, and still, I think, try to balance that uh, relationship. Um, but I think the debate has largely moved on in, in the sense that people are aware, as the Speaker of the House demonstrated when he uh, refused to allow the Chinese ambassador to speak in Parliament, or rather to an, attend an event in Parliament, um, people realise that you know we're dealing with an, a hostile and aggressive state that is seeking to silence democracy and change the way in we, which we live our lives. So I think I think that relationship has moved on to what I would say is a sad uh, but more honest reality. So there were clearly some turning points there. I mean, that's a pretty profound shift, um, more than a pivot in the last few years. In the Australian case, you know, we we had some very specific episodes of um, media revelations of foreign influence or interference activities. Uh, We had, you know, more recently, of course, the, you know, the very active and continuing and open economic coercion against Australia. We've got our own proximity to uh, South Pacific, where we've got concerns about China seeking the security presence. You know, we, we, we were unquestionably uh, an Indo-Pacific uh, country in a region where China's seeking uh, military dominance, particularly in the South China Sea. So in some ways, it's more understandable in the Australian context that there's been this, um, this wake-up on China as uh, a place of risk. Uh, at one level, it may seem a little bit surprising that it's happened in Britain. At another level... You know, we might ask the question, why did it take so long? Uh, can you explain that paradox? Sure. I mean, look, you know, in many ways, China is a long way away. I mean, actually, if you look at 
western border of China and its proximity to the UK, it's not that dissimilar from the distance between Australia and Beijing. Um, but the impression of geography and the reality, as you know, are not are not identical. And and the impression is that China is further away and it's in your area, not in ours. So I think for a lot of people for many years, it was not considered particularly relevant. I think a few things, a few decisions by the Chinese state changed that. One was bullying Australia, frankly. Um, it was, you know, it, it was pretty sobering. I mean, there's there's very few people in the UK who think ill of Australia. You know, whatever you think of Australia, whatever you think of, you know, Australian culture or economics or education or anything. Or cricket. Or, yes. Well, no, okay, we think pretty negatively about cricket, that's true. But the... <laughs> The uh, we're terrified of Australian cricket. So the um, the um, look. The reality is that the, the relationship between Australia and the UK, certainly from UK eyes, is extremely positive. You know, if if people are asked which countries they hold in esteem, and which countries they respect, which countries they may wish to move to or go on holiday to, Australia is always in the top few, right? And so to see Australia being bullied so aggressively by Beijing was a real wake-up call for many people, I think. And, it, it, you know, it certainly inspired many of us to uh, to stock up on, uh, on, on freedom wine, uh, which I hope has done some good for the Australian economy. And um, it certainly has uh, made a lot of people increasingly aware that this is, you know, this we're all in this together. But there is another element, which is, I don't know how much this has been followed in Australia, but in Europe, the wolf warrior diplomacy has been particularly aggressive. Um, countries like the Czech Republic and Sweden, again, two countries that you know, very few people have negative views about. I mean, these are you know very close allies, very close friends, and you know uh, the Swedish migration into the UK is not something I've ever heard any protests about. I mean, you know, this is you know this is this is a country that is considered extremely positively, even if you're not a fan of ABBA. And it's and to have the Chinese ambassador to Stockholm saying to the Swedish people that for our friends we have wine and flowers and for our enemies we have shotguns is, you know, it's pretty sobering. If you're, if you're threatening the Swedes, if you're threatening the Australians, if you're threatening the Czechs. Well, and the Lithuanians this week, I think. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the latest one, and I've, I've been speaking to Foreign Minister Lance Burgess about this and, and, and others, is, is to see, you know, Lithuania, a country that frankly knows the price of tyranny uh, all too well, knows the cost of occupation, knows what dictatorship looks like, is effectively being bullied by the Chinese state over what it calls a representative office in Taiwan. I mean, frankly, it's none of China's business what it calls. I mean, you can call it Juliet for all anybody's business. I mean, you know, and the and the Chinese state has got extremely hostile about it, and and is seeking to use similar tactics, not quite the same, of course, but similar tactics to the ones used on Australia, in order to force capitulation by the Lithuanian state. And you know, this is a small country, so I have to say, I'm, I'm in huge admiration uh, of the Lithuanian people uh, in demonstrating the integrity to stand up for the principles of freedom and autonomy that they quite rightly embody. These issues. Um at one level, are about geography. I mean, let's face it, uh, if, if you're Japan or India or the Philippines or Vietnam or, or Taiwan, the, the, there's, there's a very clear issue of proximity to China and 
bullying over territory, for example, that's um, at the fore of this. But if you're in Britain or if in any of the other uh, democracies uh, at a distance that are beginning to form some sort of solidarity and concern about Chinese power, it's not primarily about geography and proximity. It's about something else. And it seems to me that parliamentarians have played a pretty major role in this. I mean, there's, for instance, the um, the uh, Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which a number of Australian parliamentarians and British parliamentarians are in. And there's also, uh, if you like, groups that have formed in various parliaments informally to, to make China an issue. Um, how does that work and what's your involvement? So I set up the China Research Group about a year and a bit ago, what is it, nearly two years, year and a half ago, in order to better understand what's going on in China. And the, the, the purpose of the of the group is to, you know, read Chairman Xi's speeches to understand the economic drivers, to, to look at the different pressures on provincial governors and so on. Because the, the level of understanding of Chinese politics is extremely low. Uh, I mean, if you... If you were to ask British or many parliamentarians from around the world who the U.S. foreign minister was, you'd, you'd have a pretty good chance of getting the right answer. The same is true of Australia or the U.K. Or maybe it'd take a few days to catch up if we've just got a new one. But you know what I mean. You'd, you'd have a reasonably good chance. Whereas in many countries, it would it would be unusual to get the right answer for Wang Yi, uh, and just. I mean, this is pretty basic, but just basic understanding of what's going on in China, what's changing and what's coming next, I think is something that has become a, uh, an increasing issue because, you know, you, you quite rightly spoke about proximity and I, I understand your point entirely. And it's certainly true that countries that are proximate to China are facing greater pressure in various different ways. But, but the reality is China's policies aren't regional, they're global. Uh, and you can see this by the way that it, Beijing is seeking to influence UN agencies, such as the International Telecoms Union. You can see this by the way in which um, pressure is being put on the World Health Organization, for example, uh, to seek to silence uh, some of the criticism or at least some of the inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. You can see how China's uh, global reach is changing the way in which the rules work for all of us. And therefore, yes, of course, proximity is a factor, but it's not the only factor. And understanding how uh, Beijing's policies are seeking to influence the outcome and, and, and affect the prosperity of the British people, uh, I think is important for British parliamentarians, even though we are, as you quite rightly say, a long way away. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So let's move to the, um, I guess, the main, the main topic of this conversation, certainly for Australian listeners, and I suspect internationally, and that is the, the extraordinary news of the past week, the announcement of AUKUS, uh, the Australia-UK-United States arrangement. I'm not quite sure what uh, we should term it. Uh, it's not quite an alliance. It's not formally a treaty at this stage, but it's a, it, it, it's a pretty um, striking uh, alignment, if you like, in international affairs. And just to recap that for listeners, of course, that is the, uh, the grand announcement by the leaders of the three countries that there will be uh, a deep uh, alignment of cooperation on military technology, on new and emerging and critical technologies like cyber, and quantum computing and undersea detection with an early uh, objective of, of, of beginning cooperation to help Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines for its defence in contested Indo-Pacific region. And there's no doubt in my mind that there's a China context to that big announcement. Um, many ripples, including, uh, as we may get to, the, um, you know, the, the consequences for, for France, uh, which is, to say the least, disappointed at losing a major um, submarine-building contract with Australia. But this is a momentous development. How do you read the, um, the arrival of uh, the AUKUS arrangement? So I, I think you know it has to be referred to surely uh, as a menage a trois. I mean, isn't 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 that what it really is? Because it's a a promise of future entertainment and enjoyment that um, nobody's quite sure is going to satisfy all three. But you know, let's see, let's see what it what it delivers. Because the submarine element is the, I mean, it's the most proximate element, but it's not. It, it shouldn't be the most important bit. The most important bit should be cooperation on things like quantum and AI, on drones and on you know future technologies. So let's see where we get with that. I think that's hugely important. And by the way, the this AUKUS menage uh, has proved hugely popular uh, in the UK, quite understandably, for exactly the same reasons as we were speaking about earlier, that Australia is seen extremely positively uh, from uh, Westminster and actually from the whole of the British Isles. And uh, you know, the relationship with the United States is seen as an important one. So I think on all levels, this is a positive move. And in 2016, I was last in Australia. I'm sorry, it's so long ago. I hope I'll correct that soon, but uh, that's not in my command. Um, but when I was in, in Australia in 2016, uh, I met with many people with military voices. I was surprised that you'd decided to go for diesel electric and only wished that you could get over the political obstacle that meant that you wouldn't have nuclear propulsion. Uh, I'm delighted that you have got over that obstacle, which frankly I put down to Beijing rather than to Canberra. Um, Beijing changed the uh, the equation and made it more important that you have that capability. And so I'm, I'm glad that you've, you've, you've made that decision. I think it's worth thinking hard though about the, the French element in this. And, and it's certainly easy to say that the French are overreacting and that you know, this is business and it's just what happens and, you know, tough. I think it's worth looking at this from a slightly different perspective as well, though, and remembering who it was and why it was that the French were so keen to sell the Barracuda class 
to Australia. It wasn't just, I mean, certainly from France's perspective, it wasn't just uh, a submarine sale. It wasn't just about, you know, jobs in South Australia and jobs in Brittany being connected. It was about much more than that from the French perspective. It was about France being an important ally in the Indo-Pacific. It was about France being, you know, a player alongside the United States and Australia. And it was about France sort of, you know, taking its place in the world. And the people who were pushing it, President Macron, um, the then uh, Defence Minister, now Foreign Minister, Le Drian, they were doing it because they're Atlanticists, because they believe in uh, the relationship with the United States, they believe in the relationship with Australia. And, and so the reason that they have taken it badly and the reason there are no or not significant voices on the other side to say, hey, look, we're still friends with Australia and the US, calm down, is because the normal voices who would have said that are the ones who are feeling particularly bruised by this decision. And, you know, like all countries, right, there are, you know, some people in favour, some people against the US, some people in favour, some people against the EU, and so on. And, and the ones who are now seen to have won, in inverted commas, this debate, who are going around Paris saying, I told you so, are the ones who said, you can never trust the Americans, you can never trust uh, the English or, you know, the British or, or the Australians. You know, you should be doing this with Europe. There's literally no point in working with these guys. And those who said, no, it's important that France has a voice in the NATO table, France has, uh, has an important US ally and all the rest of it, they're the ones who are feeling bruised. So it's it, this isn't just... I mean, look, it's, it, of course, it's an important contract, but, but France is a big country, right? I mean, it's not that important a, a contract. It's an important contract for some parts of Brittany, but it's not, it's not going to make or break the French economy. What this is, is a real kick in the teeth to France's perception of itself and particularly to the Atlanticist wing of French foreign policy. And that's why we need to think really hard about how we bring in France, and by the way, other countries like Japan, Germany, into future um, cooperation on technology. Look, I'm really glad to hear you um, put it like that. And I think just as an aside, as someone who's been quite involved in the Australia-France relationship and indeed uh, efforts to build other arrangements around that, such as Australia-France and India, where we've had a trilateral dialogue, you know, I'm someone who who obviously felt a certain um, pain in the way this has unfolded. I think there's a slight sense of tragedy in this because, of course, uh, you know, we need that partnership with the French just as Australia needs the um, the best submarine capability it, it can possibly acquire given uh, the really dire strategic circumstances uh, of the Indo-Pacific. So how do we how do we um, operationalise the um, I think the the noble way you put that the idea that we've got to uh, re-engage with French and other other partners what does that look like in practice? Well, look right now that's quite hard. I mean the French are still asking why you just didn't buy the nuclear version of the Barracuda class, which is the one that they operate. You asked them to downgrade it to diesel electric. They told you it was a bad idea. You said you had to do it for political reasons. They said if you insist, and then you've turned around and said, well, I want the nuclear version, <laughs> slightly surprising to them. Um, 
the I think look I, I think the conversation that you're having with India is important and here's the quad uh, is an important element of that and by the way the, the the conversations that you have in the islands is also incredibly important as you know France is an important uh, not just for New Caledonia but but France has got interests in in, in the Pacific that are uh, not dissimilar to your own um, and so I think that you know engaging them on that conversation is important I mean it's worth pointing out that, you know, when I speak to the Indian foreign minister, the relationship he has with France is not the same as the relationship he has with the United Kingdom. And that's not just historic. It's also because Britain has two or three very strong living bridges uh, in the region. You know, we've got a huge population of Bangladeshi origin, of Indian origin and of Pakistani origin. And they're all valued, important members of our community. uh, And that means that we have to balance the relationship with their uh, with those three countries. France doesn't have that connection. France's connections for historic reasons are mostly elsewhere. And so France can be much much less ambiguously pro-Indian. Uh and you know the Indians notice that and they feel it and they see it when they're talking about uh weapons technology, when they're talking about nuclear cooperation. Uh and so you know, bringing bringing India and France together as two great democracies and and having an Australian voice at the table, I think, is an important thing to do, because actually we do need to look at future technology, not just at existing technology. And India's role in that is only going to grow. And having France and and Australia and the United Kingdom and the United States working together, I think, is a, an extremely powerful. Uh, reset against countries that are m- the moment uh, using autocracy or autocratic powers in order to develop skills that I think are, are genuinely threatening. And we do have still convergent interests in these these groupings, whether it's the Quad or AUKUS or other arrangements of, uh, of democratic powers and middle powers in the Indo-Pacific somehow uh, collaborating, it just looks like it's going to be uh, a difficult road for some time uh, working with the French in that. But I really appreciate the um, the way you you put that, Tom. I want to um, sort of wrap up really though on what AUKUS means and what the the, the British role, the UK role in the Indo Pacific is likely to look like. Um, those of us who've followed. Uh, the dynamics of this region over the last um, 10 or 20 years have sometimes wondered what role Britain would play. And, and to be honest, five or 10 years ago, uh, we, we we probably did not expect that we'd see Britain re-engaging in the region uh, the way it has the um, so-called tilt for the Indo-Pacific uh, that was um, set out in the, the integrated review this year. Of course, the, the carrier strike group uh, in the region at the moment, and uh, topping it all off now, the the long term commitment that is um, embodied in AUKUS. But what does it actually mean? I mean, how strategic are Britain's interests in the outcome of the contest uh, in the Indo Pacific between, if you like, China's play for hegemony on the one hand, and on the other hand, either a US led response or some kind of alignment? Of, of middle powers or both. What, what does Britain actually want in the Indo-Pacific and, and, and can we count on it? Well, I think, I, I mean, there's various things that Britain wants. The, the first is um, 
you know, we don't want autocracies to succeed in bullying democracies. We don't want to see our partners uh, silenced and we don't want to see freedoms eroded. Um, and that means being present where the challenge is. It means being aware that you know, countries, not just Australia, but Japan, Indonesia, the Philippines, Taiwan, you know, these are places that matter and standing up, standing alongside them, standing alongside democracies is important to all of us. But I think it's more than that as well. I mean, Britain's membership of CPTPP, um, which is now being spoken about very widely here, would really change the economic dynamics of the region for the UK in the sense that it would link us much more closely. And if you look at the way in which the US trade relationship is going, it seems to me much more likely that the UK will end up with a trade relationship, you know, with a closer trade relationship with the US through CPTPP than bilaterally. Maybe wrong, but certainly the Prime Minister's comments in Washington this morning didn't suggest that there was any immediate chance of a uh, of a bilateral deal. So I, let's see whether the Americans come back to the TPP. It's not clear that they will, but there's a possibility. Um, so I think that connects us there. And the second, no, sorry, the last thing that connects us there is, of course, you know, we do have existing commitments and the five parties defense agreement, which is, of course, with Australia, New Zealand, uh, Malaysia and Singapore, um, and, and the fifth being the United Kingdom. You know, it's a, it's a, it's mostly a maritime agreement. I mean, in theory, it's more than that, but it's mostly a maritime agreement, and it's uh, and it commits us all to guaranteeing effectively free passage through the South China Seas, the Malacca Straits, and so on. And it's a, you know, it was it was it was what we committed to when we when we withdrew from east of Suez in the in the uh, in the sixties and seventies, and you know it's it's still it's still valid and we still have a commitment there now as we see the queen elizabeth uh, our carrier sailing through those waters with a complement of us marine corps f35s on board you know it's worth remembering that those agreements that commitment you know counts not just for your region but it counts actually for for, for others as well i mean i, I was speaking to um Tarokano in um, in Japan recently, who's become a very good friend, and you know we were talking about the possibility of seeing Japanese F thirty fives flying off the Queen Elizabeth, because this is one of the things that bizarrely that defence inflation costs mean is that we've all been buying roughly the same kit. You know, a hundred years ago we made our own stuff and it was relatively cheap these days you know a single nut costs a million pounds it seems as if you buy it off a defense contractor and so we all end up buying the same ones in order to try and keep the cost down but that does mean that you know for democracies the interoperability has gone up and uh, for countries like australia and the uk where we are not just interoperable in kit but in personnel because we all hold crown commissions and therefore have the legal authority to give orders to each other's troops you know, this does make a very big difference and, and, and it, it really does change the way in which we operate. So, look, I hope um, that what this means is we're going to see more regular basing in, uh, you know, Australian ports or New Zealand ports, more frequent visits to some of the island states that, frankly, 
could do with a bit more support against Chinese uh, pressure. And I hope we're going to see uh, also a greater investment in countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, whose um, you know whose whose territorial waters are being challenged by uh, an increasingly expansionist Beijing. So I think there's an awful lot that we can do. Um, what we need to see is the commitment. And at the moment, you know, one carrier does not a strategy make. Um, it's great that it's there. But we need to have more enduring commitment if, it, if, if this is to be a summer and not just a, a swallow. Thanks, Tom. And before we wrap up, I mean, I think there, there are big questions there about long-term commitment, about the sustainability of this, you know, about where British interests lie. And I think from an Australian perspective, there's, there's two points I'd close on that I'd, I'd love your views on. One is that the hard work actually only begins now. Uh, I mean, clearly there was... A, a backstory to the the political negotiation and, and I think the the official negotiation of, of, of AUKUS where we've got to now, but uh, this is a twenty year or more um, partnership, and uh, I think in Australia there's a lot of indrawn breath at the moment, thinking we'd be, we'd better be serious about this, uh, about developing this capability, particularly the the, the nuclear powered submarine capability, but the broader relationship as well. Uh, but we're three democracies um, and democracies uh, have both the blessing and, and, and the curse of, um, of changing their minds on things from time to time, as we've seen. So what's your sense of what will keep Britain committed in the region um, and in the relationship to Australia? And I will come back with one last question after that about the, um, you know, the, the dreaded Anglosphere and whether this is the return of that. So, look, I think the, the first thing that will keep us committed is, is, is family, frankly. I mean, we are very, very closely um, intermarried, intertwined, interrelated. Um, you know, I can't remember how many Brits there are living in Australia, but I think it's something around a million. And there's a hell of a lot of Aussies uh, living in uh, the UK and many more, I hope, going to be coming with the new visa arrangements and, and different ways in which travel is going to be um, encouraged. Uh, you know, as soon as your borders reopen and you're able to fly again, it'd be, it'd be great to see you. Um, so, you know, I, I hope very much that what we're going to see is a, a much greater, a much greater, uh, you know, a deeper relationship um, from that. I think the second thing, of course, is economics. You know, joining the CPTPP will keep the UK's interests much more South Asian focused or Pacific focused. And then the last thing is, you know, the reality is the world is smaller. You know, we are a much more globalized. We, you know, what happens in your region really matters to us much more than it did. You know, in the in the 1700s, volcanoes erupted, and we felt the cold for two years, but had no real interest in the in the area now you know uh, the, the the proverbial butterfly beats its wings and we know about it very quickly i mean evergrand the uh, the chinese property company that's going through difficulties has caused uh, a drop in the FTSE 100 i mean you know this is this yeah. is this is an immediate connection right and um, you know whether you think it's good or bad i'll leave it to, to your listeners to decide but but this is an immediate connection that wasn't true a number of years ago and it's worth remembering that this is something you know, this is something that we've recognized for a while. And when you look at something like the Five Eyes Alliance, and which is why, you know, which is clearly what AUKUS is to some extent based off, 
it's worth remembering why it works, you know, because the Five Eyes Alliance isn't like other alliances. It's not an alliance based on, you know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's not a, you know, it's not the musketeer pact of NATO, you know, all for, one for all and all for one. It's it's much more than that. It's a bet not just on uh, our future and yours. It's a bet on our children's and our grandchildren's future because the level of which we're sharing uh, intelligence means that we need to trust not just your current laws, but actually your culture and the way you raise your kids, that in a 100 years time, you will still keep those secrets. Because if you don't, you know, we may be exposing flanks. And that's what this menage à trois, you know, AUKUS deal is. It's a bet that if we share technology on nuclear propulsion, you know, you're not going to sell it to somebody else in 50 years time. Um, and and that's a bet so far we'd only made with a, a, the United States when uh, when our nuclear technology went over to Los Alamos in the uh, in the Second World War, and then when Macmillan renewed the uh, agreement in the fifties, and then you know with Polaris and Trident and so on, different kind of nuclear technology, but it's it's certainly connected. This this is a this is a hell of a bet on the future of Australia and the future of uh, and Australia's bet, by the way, on the future of the UK and the US, because what Australia is now betting is that it will be able to always resupply its ships and or boats rather, and able to sustain them in operation. So that's, you know, you've just made a very big bet. Uh, I presume Australia knows what it's doing, but it's made a very big bet on the stability of the United States and the United Kingdom. And it is important to remember that, you know, the, the, the centrality of the United States in this. I think it's, it's been really good to have a conversation um, that explains, particularly for Australian listeners, the UK role uh, and the UK interests uh, a bit more. But, of course, uh, there's no AUKUS without the United States. And in parallel to this, Australia's done uh, an enormous amount in recent weeks to reaffirm and strengthen the alliance um, the so-called OSMIN meeting uh, in the United States last week uh, stepped up forced posture initiatives. Uh, and so, you know, if you like, we stand rightly accused of um, throwing in our lot with um, America's strategy in the, in the Indo-Pacific. But look, last question, uh, Tom, and that is really the flip side of this. One of the accusations, one of the criticisms uh, that will be made of AUKUS is that it is a so-called Anglosphere arrangement, that it's a, a club of, uh, if you like, countries with Anglo-Saxon traditions, uh, English-speaking, uh, you know, it's, it, it's an alignment, an alliance in a sense that would be very familiar in the 1940s. What's it doing now? And what about the need to engage with, uh, I guess, a, a more diverse range of partners with um, particularly uh, countries that are resident uh, in Asia? Uh, how is that read in Britain or how, how do you read that and how, how do we manage that perception? Is it a problem? Well, I think, I mean, I'm reminded of what one of your former prime ministers said when I asked them what was the national security strategy of Australia, and their response in three words was, God bless America. Um, of course, that's a slightly flippant answer to, but it exposes a fundamental truth, which is that, you know, the reality is for democracies that the United States is uh, is the hegemon. It is, it is the power around which others, uh, you know, on which others depend. And as the keystone in our security relationship, it's hardly surprising that we all lean towards it. I mean, you know, there are two lessons of uh, the recent AUKUS affair uh, for France and for the UK. For France, one of the lessons could be 
you need to hang on tighter to the United States because actually strategic autonomy is a lot more expensive, a lot harder than you thought it was. And that is one reading of, of what's just happened. Um, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I know what you mean about Anglosphere, although I, I look at Australia today, okay, five years ago in 2016, and, you know, the white Australia policy ended a long time ago. I don't know what the ethnic makeup of Australia is, but it's certainly much more, uh, it looks much more regionally uh, balanced than it did 30, 40 years ago. Uh, if you look to at... To interrupt you, our, our largest three migrant communities are, uh, are Indian, Chinese in, in, in Brit- and British, perhaps not in that order, but that's that's the big three. So you, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, that's a big change. If you look at the United States today, for example, uh, California is now more than 50% Hispanic. Now, you know, the, the, the United States has changed. And by the way, the UK has changed too, not quite as dramatically, but it, it has changed too. You know, what we're actually doing is not is not an Anglosphere in a narrow sense. What we're doing is a bet on, um, if you like, the operating system that has built democratic liberty in one of the most effective ways the world has ever seen. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other free democratic countries. There are. But the democratic experiment that has resulted in um, the liberties that the Australian, British and American people enjoy is remarkably successful. You know, Australian democracy has uh, has been flourishing for over a century, British for two or three centuries, depending on how you define it, possibly more, the US for nearly 250 years. You know, these, these, are, these are extraordinary successes in, uh, in, in, in how to live together, how to transfer power, how to settle disputes, how to resolve arguments. That is why we can make this bet on each other. And so I wouldn't look at it as an Anglosphere in the sense of, you know, to use the term in the 1950s, a white Australia policy. I would look at it as, a, as an operating system in which, you know, we can work together really effectively. You know, this is, this is Apple plugging into Apple. It's not like Microsoft where you can stick anything in, but none of it really works. This is, this is, this is Apple where it all works together seamlessly and connecting other things. Yeah, it's a bit tricky, but you can, you know, and so it's that's that's what we're we're looking at here. So I do think we do need to bring in others, but I think we need to bring in others whose similar commitment to the long term future of the liberty and democracy of their peoples is it's something that we can see established. Funnily enough, I think Japan is a country that we should be making that bet with. Germany, another one. France, another one. You know, there are countries around the world we should be doing this. This isn't simply an Anglosphere, but it needs to be based on the operating system, uh, not on the uh, you know not on the expedient. Uh, decision of a day. That's a really great note to end on. Uh, those, those shared principles of, um, of liberal democracy, and it's—I um, mean, it, it is striking that uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia are actually three of the most multicultural societies in the world today. So, um, thank you, Tom. Thanks so much for your thoughts and your time. Uh, really big picture, strategic thinking, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in Australia as soon as the borders open. Thanks very much. It would be a great pleasure to be back. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.